seeing his face was quite striking. He, the image of him at that time is really, will I think forever be in my head. I wanted to be able to help. I wanted to be able to do something to help. And I realize after the fact that sometimes helping means stepping away, you know, and giving them the space that, that they want or need at the end of life. Welcome. I'm Dr. Dawn Gross, hospice and palliative medicine physician, and this is UCSF Heart Sounds, a new series from Dying to Talk about the moment every doctor faces at some point in their medical training, their first patient death. Now, heart sounds is medical jargon for the different types of lub-dub sounds the heart makes when we hear it through a stethoscope. It also means the sounds our souls make when listening deeply with the heart. Please know you will be hearing real stories of death, so this may not be the podcast you want to listen to while heading to the gym or driving your children to school. The beauty of podcasts is that you are in control. Remember, you can pause at any moment, take a breath, and give yourself time to reflect. And if you find yourself needing support, please head to our show website at dyingtotalk.com, where you will find resources. Every physician I speak with is as unique as the story they share. Every conversation illuminates our shared humanity as we listen to the heart of what matters most. Hey, you listener, names or details in the stories shared on UCSF Hard Sounds by Dying to Talk have been changed to protect individual privacy in accordance with HIPAA. The ideas, opinions, and viewpoints expressed are those of the individuals speaking and do not represent endorsement by Dying to Talk or UCSF. In this episode, I'll be speaking with a pediatric neurology resident. That's a type of doctor who is in the process of learning the specialty of caring for children with diseases that affect the development and functioning of the brain. Join us for a conversation about death with the person who's training to save your child's life. Welcome, Dr. Laura Deering. Thank you. A pleasure to have you join us. Maybe you could start with what your first experience with a patient death has been as you have started in your new career as a physician. Absolutely. So as part of our training for pediatric neurology, we start out with two years of general pediatrics um, where we're not yet specializing in neurology. And it was my very beginning of my second year of pediatrics in July. And I had started off that year by choosing to do a, a palliative care rotation because um, I was interested in the field and I didn't know what to expect. And during that rotation was when I, I uh, had my first patient death. Um, and it was a child, he was nine years old, um, had been recently diagnosed with cancer and then got a really terrible fungal disease that ended up um, moving very quickly. And we were there 
as the palliative care team. Um, so I was there with an attending and social worker and a whole team of people to meet with the family and um, and talk about what was happening with their child and their goals and who he was before he came into the hospital and get to know him a little bit better because at that point he wasn't he was intubated and wasn't able to speak. So just to be clear, intubated, he has a breathing tube that's going into his lungs and most people aren't even awake, let alone they, they have the ability to make sounds to use their vocal cords. Yeah, to talk. yeah, exactly. It was within two to three days that he really started to go downhill. Um, the fungus was just everywhere and... Um, I think was moving faster than anyone really anticipated even on the the ICU team. I remember that initial meeting and then I remember the walking into the room the day when the team said, you know, we really think today is the day he's going to die. Um, and seeing his face was quite striking. He He, the image of him at that time is really, will I think forever be in my head. He already looked just so incredibly ill, almost already dead. And the family at the time was so closed. They were, they had really felt like they had created this shell around them with the patient. Um, and we, we sort of tried to reach them in that moment to, s to talk about anything else, you know, anything in that moment that they would need from, that they would want um, from any team members. And and they just, I, I remember maybe two words from them. They really just wanted to be left alone. What were you hoping when you think about offering our team members, what could you want from our team members? What were you imagining they might... I think, you know, this was also my first time with the palliative care team. And so I was learning what we even have to offer in the hospital. And I think in our time with them, we had gotten to know that they appreciate um, support from chaplains in their lives, um, that they really appreciated their relationship with God. Also, there were other aspects of end of life care, like having. Uh, music, our our music therapists come into the room, um, or to have someone, uh, you know, a so the social worker or someone with them at that time. And so, I think I was there. I felt like an observer in that moment um, because I didn't really, I, I wasn't leading that conversation. I wouldn't have known sort of even how to start it in that moment because it was my first time being in the room while the child was actively dying. But yeah, I think our goal was to see, you know, is there a person who can support you through this transition, essentially. So that they weren't alone. Yeah, like. yeah. yeah. Um, and they really, truly wanted to be alone, which was startling for me. I'm hearing, that's what yeah. I was, was going to ask. How did that make yeah. you feel to have that offering, but the response to be we actually want to be alone. I'm not, did they even communicate those words or it was no. just the expression of how they were engaging? Yeah. It was really their 
posture, their lack of speech, you know, it was everything that they were communicating without words, mm. essentially. Mm-hmm. In talking to the attending that I was with, and that's the, the senior doctor, the yeah. supervising doctor, the teaching doctor, yeah. He shared that this is something that many, you know, families want so many different things at the end of life and that this is one of them. And I think, um, I don't know, there was something at the moment where I wanted to be able to help I wanted to be able to do something to help. And I realize after the fact that sometimes helping means stepping away, you know, and giving them the space that, that they want or need at the end of life. But in the moment I wanted to be able to offer something, you know. So powerful what you just said, right? That I think we are so trained in the doing and that what I just heard was the the lesson that maybe goes unspoken is that there is also something called doing something which is stepping away. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I still can't say that that felt like helping, you know. Um, but I but I think it was a helpful lesson to learn that we I want to honor what families want. You know, even if that doesn't feel, maybe it doesn't feel good for me. So this encounter happens, the, the observation leads you to say, there isn't something for me to physically contribute in my presence in, in some way. And so what happened next? So we step out of the room and I was just hit with this like wave of grief that was I kind of felt it in the room but there was something about stepping out that it's just like whoa that I feel deeply sad right now and I could feel it with my team members too that we all just felt that grief stepping out of the room had you felt something like that before with any other patient encounters? Not that I can remember. And this one was particularly sort of disorienting in a way, which, you know, of I hadn't known the family for very long. You know, I sat down with them maybe twice before this encounter. I hadn't known the child very In fact, I hadn't gotten to know the child at all. And in the moment, I thought, I'm just sort of feeling the grief of, of that, of feeling grief from seeing the family. But I think, and in talking to the attending right after the fact, my supervisor, we, we, he said, you know, something along the lines of like, I'll, you know, I, I'm going to have to go home and, and sit with this one. You know, it was, a, it was a heavy one, I think, for all of us. But... I didn't quite know what to do with it in that moment. And I, it felt like I didn't really want to lose it in the middle of the day. My eyes get really red after I cry. You know, I, I just, I wanted to 
be able to hold it in to get to the end of the day. Because you had more work to do. You yeah. People to see. Yeah. And it feels very vulnerable, you know, when you don't see other people doing it around you. So was anyone, even though you were sensing grief in your team outside the room, did anyone physically show that they were grieving, meaning tears or? I don't remember seeing tears from the team. Did that surprise you? I think as a trainee, I'm like, as I go along, I'm learning from people in front of me. I've never really seen attendings cry at work. I've never seen that before. So honestly, it would have been surprising if I had. (laughs) I hear that. And as you just said, that so much of the training, even though you didn't say this specifically, but it's, it's beyond books. Right? Mm-hmm. That the training, particularly in residency, and this being the very beginning of your residency, this experience, that so much of the learning now is observing, mm-hmm. right? And then essentially modeling yourself after what you're seeing your superiors, your teachers, in this case, you're attending, do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or the, the residents in, in years above you. Mm-hmm. And so to have no one showing tears. It sounds like, you know, for you, that wasn't surprising given even what you'd already seen perhaps in medical school and rotating in the hospital being with patients, but that had someone shown tears, would that have raised the question of, well, now am I supposed to do that or can I do that? (laughs) Would that have been confusing for you, you think? I don't know if it would have, I don't know if it would have been confusing. I think I would have appreciated it, perhaps. I think that that experience of being on the palliative care team was the first time that people were even talking about grief around me, which felt really nice to have people talking about it and to acknowledge coming out of that room and having big emotions. Even just talking about it felt really um, validating, sort of, or that it was normal. Uh-huh. So it's yeah. just the the single sentence that you're attending said of, I'm going to have to sit with this, felt as a significant acknowledgement of what we just experienced was emotionally momentous yeah. and worthy of attention, even though as a team in that moment, that was the amount of attention that could be paid was simply saying that, making that statement. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I don't have a perfect memory for what happened the rest of the day. (laughs) I remember going home and being very, very sad. And um, I think it was with, I think it was within a day or two of that experience, maybe the day after, I don't remember. Um, I had already been seeing a therapist uh, trying to do it once a week but it it was hard in residency. Um, But it was good timing because I I brought it up to her and I said, I don't know why, I don't understand why I feel so sad. I don't understand. Like, I didn't know this child. I I didn't know his family practically. In fact, they wanted us out, you know? Um, 
And for some reason, I can't wrap around my head around why I'm feeling so deeply. I'm feeling so much grief. And she said, of course you are. (laughs) Of course you're feeling grief around, around losing a patient. You know, that's completely normal. And I think I had grief around how young he was. To lose a child at that age just seems so deeply incorrect to me. And feeling the loss of that, it was the only child of the family and feeling the loss of that child from the family was so painful and I think there are many aspects I guess is what I'm saying that were really distressing Um, and I guess it was the first time that I really heard someone tell me that my grief was okay and it was normal Had there ever been conversation in medical school around anticipating that yes in fact we won't be able to save every single person's life, that people are mortal and they will die. And and what our response as the professional caregiver in that setting might be, was there, do you recall any conversation around that? I can't remember having a conversation like that. I remember having a conversation with, I worked in an emergency room before medical school for a little while. And my boss at the atten- at the time was an attending in the emergency room and i remember him saying you know we stand in the way of death and we can't always prevent it from happening sometimes we can and sometimes we can't but death is it was sort of this feeling that death is an inevitability and that in medicine we're trying to put it off essentially but there's only so much we can do at some And it felt like he, it was this really, for me at least, it was this nice way of reframing like, this is a, this is something that is natural and it happens all the time. And yes, we are working against it as doctors, but like, it's normal, you know? And I think for me, that was a helpful thing to hear. But then coming into it with like a nine-year-old who dies within two weeks, like I just couldn't really feel was normal or that it was a natural process, sort of. Yeah. Um, And even still, because I know you have, as part of your residency training, you also care for adults. mm -hmm. That's part of the program, right? So you're now in year three Mm -hmm. of a five-year program, and there are adults who also die, some with rapidity, right, unexpected, and some perhaps we know the course of this illness and that this is not, we would say, is an unexpected death. And so I'm wondering, do you notice a different response sort of a la how this emergency medicine doctor was saying that this is an inevitability? Does that change your experience of grief around the death of a patient? Yeah, it's interesting in the adult, I'm in my adult neurology year now, And there's much more death this year Hmm. than there ever was in my two years of pediatrics. 
after that death in July, I had multiple other ones that year. Of children. Of children, yeah. There were some that I was deeply affected by and some of them hit me with less grief. Um, and then there's something about coming to the adult world where they there's much more comfort with it in in adult providers. It's much more routine almost. How does that show up for you? You know, every patient that comes into the hospital adult-wise, they we have a conversation about, have you talked about if anything were to happen, you know, with your family member? And I think the other interesting thing, I know I'm not quite answering your question because I'm not talking about my emotions, but um, <laughs> the other interesting thing is that in, in the adults, we always talk about, you know, or I've heard really nice framing that like, I'm so glad you can be their voice, that you can share with us what they would want in this moment, um, because really we want to honor what they want. And in pediatrics, it's like parents are making decisions for their six-month-olds or their seven-year-olds who, yes, they know who they are at their core, but they likely have not expressed a seven-year-old probably wouldn't have expressed what they would want at the end of their life, you know, or if they something were to happen. or that. So they're like making these big decisions for on the behalf of their own child. And then the adult world, it's sort of, we have this focus on trying to have the patient's voice come through. Like, what would you want? Really, what do they want? Well, it doesn't matter what you want necessarily. We want to do what they would want. And it's, I've found that to be helpful you know, to have to have the patient have said, I do not want to go to a rehab facility. I do not want to be dependent on someone else. Or I really want something to be done for me at the end of my life. I really want the tube to be, you know, it's, it feels like you're, you're working for their wants and what they want for themselves. And for me, that has been helpful in a certain way. And... I think what I see in the adult world is so many patients are alone, don't have people necessarily speaking on their behalf. They don't have the teams that we have in the pediatrics world. I don't know. I feel like I have had some very deeply sad moments this year, and I've found them to be often with the patients who are completely alone with devastating neurologic disease who can't express their wishes. And I don't know, you know, we all have grief come up for certain patients more so than others. And and I have found that the loneliness is really challenging for me. That feeling the loneliness at the end of, of life is I go home and I, I really have a lot of grief with those patients. So when you do go home, what do you do to try and address your grief, ease it, soothe it? I don't know the word that you would choose. I, I relate to grief actually as an injury. And so I think about how do we heal the injury of grief? And I'm wondering what you've been 
discovering for yourself or maybe what you've if you've been able to talk with other team members who are with you you're not you're not usually in isolation in these encounters and so what are you finding yeah i i think one thing i developed during my time in pediatrics that i've found to be helpful is i i feel like i have this sort of graveyard i can visit of people who i've lost and that's people outside of you know in my personal life but also in medicine patients who i've really had a deep grief with and sometimes i'll sit on my floor and there's a meditative practice called loving kindness and i'll sit and sort of do a loving kindness practice for the graveyard of people that i have but i think i haven't really I've found grief comes and goes and I'm I feel almost like I'm along for the the ride a little bit but I haven't really developed a way to I don't know it's interesting that that you bring it up as an injury because I've never really thought about it that way. Yeah, I've noticed. I mean, this is a something new language that I've brought to it as I've thought about grief a lot both personally and then professionally working in the field of hospice and palliative medicine where we have a very high death rate of the people we care for. It's not 100%, but it's extremely high. And while that's not expected given the specialty, does it mean it doesn't create an experience of grief? Of course not. Um, I think in listening to both myself as well as people around me, the, the families that I'm serving, patients experiencing anticipatory grief before they die and my colleagues that the language we use is one of injury we talk about feeling ripped apart we talk about a hole in my heart or feeling like my heart's been ripped out of my chest and it occurred to me like we're speaking in the language of injury but we're not relating to it and what happens if we allow ourselves actually to relate to grief as an injury, we, we give ourselves a lot more permission to be with an injury, to address it, to attend to it, to support it, than I think we do um, when we don't relate to grief that way. Yeah. I mean, I think when I think about that nine-year-old's death, I, I mean, I still feel it, you know? I still in talking about it i'm emotional and it's been a long it's been a long time now i mean not a long long time but you know it does feel like an injury that i don't realize is still there if you think about the child's parents the child's family would you be surprised if they have a similar feeling or even more magnified sense of injury? I cannot fathom the depth of grief. Uh, you know, I experienced 10 minutes of it and they will experience a lifetime of that injury. And yeah, so it's, I think that's what's, you know, what you're bringing up is interesting to me that like, 
I, of course, expect it to be a lifetime injury for them. I expect that. And yet I don't think I should be holding it in that way for some reason. And no one's ever told me that explicitly. Um, but I do really, it continues to surprise me, um, the grief that I feel sometimes. And I think I'm getting better at allowing it for myself and knowing that there's a range of how you can feel in these moments and all of those are okay, you know, that that all of the reactions we have in relation to our many experiences with patient death is they're, they are all okay. Um, and I still feel this tension sometimes. So I really appreciate your willing to have this conversation and and I wanna I find myself wanting to offer <laughs> a perspective on it um, because of how you just spoke of it this range that that we can ex- allow ourselves to expect a range of emotional responses and for me sort of what's left unsaid even though even those words aren't explicitly said, right? We aren't trained, we aren't taught. There isn't a lecture that I'm aware of. And while I was in med school a while longer ago than you, nonetheless, it sounds like there's not a memorable lecture for you if there even was one that talked about one's response to having a patient die, even though no matter the specialty, it is going to happen as your emergency room physician announced, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is the inevitability, and yet we don't pay attention to the reality of that and the rapidity of that and what to do with it. So even if we glean an allowance of there are a range of emotions we're allowed to have, there is yet to be attention paid to, well, how do we then attend to that? Mm-hmm. And if you were to indulge this metaphor of an injury, mm-hmm as a physician, we're trained to assess injury, right? And we know there's a range of them, right? In the emergency room, right? The first sort of line of injury defense, like, Mm -hmm. do you need urgent care? Do you need to be admitted to the hospital? Do you need an ICU? Like, Mm -hmm. we're Mm -hmm. assessing. Yeah. And so even if someone came from the same sort of initiating event, whatever, that incident was a car accident, for example, we don't then all assume that everybody in the accident has the same type and degree of injury that warrants the exact same care. So there's an automaticity as a physician, what you're trained to do. And what would it be like if we extended that to grief? Would that give us more space and an ability to respond and attend to our experience? And I wonder if you just sit here and think upon this first family, this first child, would that allow you more space as compared to others whom you've been present to have died that the injury, if we use that again, metaphor, was not necessarily as severe and warranting the same kind of attention? I think when I think about the time, I sort of, I didn't know To use the metaphor, I, I don't, I didn't know that I needed help with the injury or I needed some healing of it, you know? 
or where to look for that exactly. And I think in residency, I've seen people trying to build more of this in over time that debrief moments, you know, with like, we'll have, uh, especially with patients who have been cared for by many people in the pediatrics hospital, we'll have some sit down debriefs where the ICU, the, maybe it's the oncology team, the, all those people will get together and talk about the patient if they've, if they have died. And what's the intention? Is it explicit in that? How, because there are many times we, as clinicians, will come together to debrief what mm-hmm. happened, mm-hmm. right? And so is there an explicit attention, intention, excuse me, that you're talking about in this type of setting? Yeah. As I was transitioning out of pediatrics, they were starting to do it more and more where they would actually intentionally, it wasn't about the care and what could have we had done better. It was about like, we know this person has made an impact on so many of you and we want to get together as a group and give space to talk about that person. And so I think that that is starting to happen more. And I think that to me, that kind of a thing is is helpful because I'm not going to reach out and say, hey, can we have a group together? Or like, oh yeah, this is probably what I need in this moment. Also, we all grieve in our own ways and we, you know, some people don't want to talk about it together. Why? I'm just curious, why don't you think you would interject, you would reach out and say, hey, can we yeah. talk about this? What, I, what stops you? Yeah. I think certainly in the past, I didn't know if my grief was like shared or appropriate in a certain sense. Yeah. And even now, I think I'm, it, it definitely feels vulnerable. It feels vulnerable in a certain way. To admit that you're grieving? Is that what, or what, what's the vulnerability? Yeah, like to, to really just like sob together about things, but it feels really nice. And I have always appreciated when I've done it with colleagues and the moments when I have been able to talk about the end of life of a certain patient's life, it's been really, it's brought me closer to them. It's been very validating. Um, and so I can't really give you a good reason why I don't at this point in time, I, I almost think it's also in my adult year, like it happens really often. And I don't even know like what event to debrief <laughs> at this point. Like that one, that, that one in pediatrics, I think there's something about pediatrics too that I was finding with death where it's like many of these, it's a big deal. Like when you, in peds, you are working furiously against death most of the time, there are some times there are, that there are patients who have been on palliative care for a very long time and the end, we've had many conversations over years about what the end could look like. And But even then, you know, we've been with these patients for a long time or it's been a really intense process of processing. And in the adult world, it's sort of like, I don't know, it just feels more common and more, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase this one exactly. That's okay. I I wonder if we become acclimated. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a certain acclimation. You know, you shared with me in an earlier conversation an experience, I think it was this year, I think it was with adult care, um, where there was a person who actually died 
during what we call our morning round. So we are in the hospital as a team, sort of moving in these things called huddles from door to door, seeing people. And you had known there was someone who was approaching the very, very end of life. And then they, in fact, died while you're in this process of of rounding, of seeing people in the morning. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because I, I recall what you said uh, that occurred after, and that you did assert yourself in a way to name the experience. Yeah, yeah. She had been very ill for several weeks, and in many, through many conversations with the family, we had come to the team and joint understanding that she was going to die and that none of us were going to kind of intervene on that, and that was the family's wishes as well. During that morning, it was it was the day that she finally ended up dying. And during rounds, my attending, it was the attending and fellow and me as the resident and then another junior resident and some medical students. And my attending at the time said, for our learners in the group, including the medical students, it, it may be helpful to see what, what it's like to pronounce a patient at the end of their life. So pronouncing is this terminology we use in medicine that I think legally deems a person as dead and and what actually then creates the moment of creating a death certificate. And so there's a true procedure to declaring a person dead, this pronouncement. And so your attending said, let's do this together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, let's do this together. So we went down and, and I did the pronouncement. You listen to the heart for a, a full minute. You feel for pulses. You check for, you know, pupils, pupil reactivity, all of those things. And yes, you know, we pronounced her dead at that time. And then we continued on our way in rounds. Because um, you had more people. Because to we see. had more people to see. Yeah. We had more people to see, and we didn't really, we didn't really pause in that moment to talk about it. But it was sort of like, this is what a death pronouncement looks like, and now we're going to go see our other patients and talk about their plans. And to be clear, there wasn't family at the bedside. There was no family. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There were no family members at the bedside. Did anyone from the team call the family in that moment? Yes. Yeah. The, there was a whole in that moment. The background was talking to the family and they we had explicitly had a conversation with them before do you want to be at the bedside when she dies like you know what what are the pieces that are important to you all and I think they ultimately just wanted to get a phone call uh, at the end and that they would be able to go from there essentially but their decision was to not be at the bedside and so when we pronounced, there was another team member who stepped away to call the family and start the process um, that begins with pronouncing a patient dead. And we went along to go talk about our other patients. And when we came back to the workroom, it was me and the other resident and the medical students. And so you'd seen how many patients in the interim? So this person you pronounced dead, you then went on and saw additional patients that needed your attention. Mm-hmm. Two, 10, 20? I think there were probably like, we'd probably already done half the list of patients, so maybe another five or so, mm-hmm. another five to seven. 
And it was around lunchtime that we ended. So you all then go to your computers. That's right, yeah. We sort of split up as a team. We have the resident workroom where it's the residents and the medical students and then the fellow and attending are in their own offices. So it was just me and the medical students and the other resident. And it's because of my past experiences um, with patient deaths that I sat them down and I said, because we had already started, we initially jumped right into like tasks. Okay, what do we have to do, you know? And I pulled us back and I said, I just want to talk about what happened this morning because I know that we get into this routine sometimes and that it it becomes routine at times for us to, to have death pronouncements. <laughs> but I know for all of us, we can have different things come up in these moments, different emotional experiences. We didn't pause to talk about our emotional experiences at that time, but I want to make space to just acknowledge that you may have different reactions than we might have had in that moment. And if you want to talk about the experience or anything that comes up, I want to be here for you to talk about it. And that grief in these moments is normal and also not having grief necessarily is also, it, it can be normal too. And so I, I made that space intentionally and, and we had a little bit of a discussion, not too much, but I think it was important for me to pause in that moment with it because we really hadn't paused earlier. And, I, and there was a time in my medical school life that was sort of similar that we didn't pause slash it was like a death overnight and then they were just off the list in the morning and no one even talked about it. And I was like, what just happened, you know? So I just didn't want it to be a disorienting experience and I wanted to acknowledge the, the, uh, the breadth of possibilities there. I think it's profound what you did. And it doesn't sound like you necessarily had someone model that for you, that you came to that and created that through the other experiences you've encountered, yeah? And and I had written down a phrase you had you had shared with me of that you said, I, I believe you said these words, we passed death quickly here. Mm -hmm. Passed death quickly here. It's such a, an astonishing statement. Like in what other professions does one not like really lose one's breath like you are forced mm -hmm. to pause the tears force us to pause the inability to breathe forces us to pause and I think in medicine we somehow have created a practice of hey, we just keep going mm -hmm. <laughs> we, we gotta keep going until it becomes automatic as you're almost saying we've acclimated to it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We just keep going. Yeah, I I have moments, not necessarily in every moment of death, but where I reflect on like the ripples of grief through a community with every death that we pass in ways that I'll never know. These moments that we pass by quickly are life, are forever life-changing for the people who are affected by them. And it really is striking. Yeah, they don't pass for them. Yeah. As you said, that family, you can imagine 
for the rest of their life. There's there's nothing there passing through quickly. Yeah. Laura, there's so much more for us to talk about. And and part of me is increasingly like, and how is it you're going to be doing pediatric neurology? Like, wow. Wow. And, um, and there's a part of me that's like, yeah, I want to circle back to this conversation with you two years from now mm-hmm. <laughs> and hear your thoughts because there's so much I'm already learning from you and and, and hearing this dissonance, this reckoning and this bringing together, weaving together a new path for you and the people around you as you encounter what you're encountering and give yourself space and I think really embrace um, or even embody what your therapist so wisely and brilliantly shared in the perfect moment of, of course, you're grieving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course you are. And I wonder how many people have never been given that kind of permission. Yeah, I I wonder that too. And I think it's important that we keep saying it in medicine. And I think it's also really important to say it in the moment too. Because I think I may have heard it along the way at some point in a certain sense. And I didn't internalize it until I had that moment of grief. And I heard it in those moments that I was feeling the grief so profoundly and I think I I want everyone to feel that it's a normal process too yeah we care yeah it's in the name health care we get to care which means we get to grieve so I'm really grateful for your being willing to share your stories your experiences and I hope for people listening that they can find themselves here and hopefully create space for themselves and the people around them to know that it's okay to grieve, that it's normal. Yeah, I hope so too. (laughs) Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Dying to Talk, UCSF Heart Sounds. My hope is that by hearing Dr. Deering tell her story, you will be inspired to share your own. Sharing is not only a gift to those who listen, it's also a moment of healing for those who share. That's why we've created a couple of ways to make it easy to engage with community about these stories. The first is something I call huggles. It's a riff on the word huddles, which is what doctors do as we walk around the hospital with our team seeing patients. Think of a huggle like a book club or audio where friends come together with the intention of giving each other the experience of being held and hugged as you reflect on what you've heard. You can also check out our Slack channel to join an online huggle. It's all at our website, dyingtotalk.com. Also at our website, you'll find a link to a very brief survey. Your feedback is critical for us, and to make it enticing for you, two lucky winners will be randomly selected after every episode to receive $50 gift certificates from Rise Up Bakery, 
or wholesome bakery. And for folks who offer feedback on the entire season, you'll be in the running for one of two $75 gift certificates. While not required, we do hope this may encourage you to gather your friends for a food for thought huggle, where you can break bread and share delicious treats as you share your own stories. This episode of UCSF Heart Sounds was produced by the team of Dying to Talk, sound engineer Fernando Vivez, production supervisor Joanna Lynn, and executive producer Matt Martin. Music has been created and generously provided by Craig Minowa of Cloud Cult. This show is made possible by the UCSF Community Wellbeing Grant. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Gross. Thanks so much for listening.